Well, I'm in over my head, no one told me. Trying to keep my footprint small was harder than I thought it could be. I'm in over my head, what do I really need? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me? Welcome to In Over My Head. I'm Michael Bartz. My guest today is Chris Henderson. Chris is the Executive Director of Indigenous Clean Energy, a not-for-profit which advances Indigenous inclusion in Canada's energy future economy. Chris is an eco-entrepreneur, community leader, and environmental innovator. For the past 35 years, he has led and been at the forefront of groundbreaking Canadian enterprises, as well as social and ecological initiatives. He is also the author of Aboriginal Power, Clean Energy, and the Future of Canada's First Peoples. Welcome to In Over My Head, Chris. Well, thank you for inviting me. So in looking into the various aspects of the electricity grid and decarbonization, I came across something that I hadn't quite considered before, which is the role of Indigenous communities. It seems to me they have their own unique challenges and solutions, which I'm really interested in exploring in our conversation today. So to begin, I'd like to give our listeners a bit more context. Can you tell me generally about the unique energy needs of our Indigenous communities here in Canada? Well, I mean, I don't think Indigenous communities are different than other communities in terms of their needs. They need power for their homes and their businesses, and then if they have electric cars to charge them. But I think it's important to recognize that Indigenous participation in clean energy is not just about their own needs. It's about supplying the, the energy needs for Canadians. And in fact, today, Indigenous communities own, co-own, or have a defined benefit agreement with almost 20% of Canada's electricity generating infrastructure. They are, in fact, the largest clean energy community in Canada, apart from utilities. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. So tell me more about that. How did that come about? It's happened about that over the last 20 years through a series of changes. I mean, first of all, if you're generating hydropower, wind power, solar power, you are using what is traditional Indian land somewhere in Canada. They may not own it today, and it may be owned by, originally would have been First Nations, Métis, or Inuit land. But as a result of this has been developed and Indigenous rights have become stronger, Indigenous communities started saying, look, if you're going to be developing a hydro project and um, you know, you're know you developing it on our traditional land, we want to be a partner in that. We want to be a co-owner. And that has started back in the early 2000s and accelerated since then. And now basically every major, in fact, every small renewable energy project in Canada, or almost everyone, has Indigenous participation as a partner, sometimes a minority owner, sometimes a majority owner, and sometimes equal ownership. Okay, well, super interesting. Because, yeah, I was, when I was looking into it, some of the articles I read were more about some remote communities that were relying on diesel power generators to power their communities and such. But that's good that they're involved in, in so many other projects when it comes to clean energy. Well, yeah, no, it's, it represents an almost over $100 billion investment of indigenous communities in the clean energy sector, particularly wind, hydro, uh, solar, and bioenergy. And the off-grid communities are a part of this for sure, and diesel reduction. But let's remember, I mean, there are about 300 off-grid communities in Canada. If they represent a city, it would be the size of Peterborough, Ontario. It's not that large overall. The bigger part is the main participation of Indigenous communities in the main electricity grid. Okay, yeah. And, and when you talk about that participation and then being involved in these various projects, I mean, have there been any sort of barriers to get involved with them? The majority of the electricity supply is controlled by provincial agencies and sometimes by provincial or, uh, or private utilities. And so therefore, Indigenous involvement in that space has been very dependent on what that policy evolution has been. It started first in Ontario and BC, principally in the early, around 2005, 2010, 
where they said, look, we think that as part of recognizing indigenous rights and territories that they encouraged indigenous ownership in new energy projects that were coming online. So as the energy system became more diversified, and it wasn't just controlled by monopolies of utilities, for example, like BC Hydro, now you have over 80, 100 First Nations projects that supply power into the BC grid. And so it was an evolution that occurred that tied together several forces of change. One is the need for cleaner energy to reduce carbon reliance. Uh, secondly, is that Indigenous communities asserting their rights and those rights becoming stronger and stronger in terms of legal recognition and also in sometimes in government policy. And finally, the actual government policy at the provincial territorial level in terms of providing incentives or providing recognition that Indigenous communities being suppliers of clean energy was something that our, us as a society should have. Okay, well, I'm glad that work is happening. And how does your organization fit into this equation? Well, Indigenous Community is, is the national hub for this leadership. First of all, I started doing projects back in the late 20th century. And then since that time, I've helped personally advise around 30, 35 Indigenous communities become partners in major clean energy projects around the country. And around 2015, we recognized that there needed to be an Indigenous organization that built Indigenous skills, Indigenous know-how to become really good partners or, in fact, developers of clean energy. And Indigenous clean energy evolved out of that. And so right now, Indigenous Clean Energy works in every region of the country. We have almost 10 major programs that are capacity building, training oriented, to make sure that Indigenous communities get the know-how and skills they need to develop clean energy projects, negotiate partnerships, gain financing. And that's what ICE does. Okay, great. And do you have any maybe specific stories about some of the communities that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I've worked with many different communities around the country. So you, you may say, for example the Dokies community on the French River in Ontario, which connects the Ottawa River watershed with the Great Lakes. It was, in effect, the highway of the Corps de Bois in the fur trade. And um, the French River was dammed by three outlets back in the early, uh, mid-1800s by the government of Canada for colonial interests to do lumbering. So those dams have been there all the way along. So the Dokies community, about 10 years ago, as Ontario went to diversify away from coal, they bid along with a partner to generate power beside one of those hydro dams, which they did. And it's been my privilege to both represent them, and, and now I'm honored to be an honorary member of the community as well. And that's just one story among hundreds. I mean, you have over 200 major clean energy projects and almost 3,000 small clean energy projects that have Indigenous ownership and participation in, in every region of Canada. Oh, that's great. And when you talk about clean energy, is that mostly hydro or wind or solar? Or is it a combination of these things? It's a combination, you know, I would say, you know, in the 2005, 2015 period, it was probably mostly hydro. And then a transition occurred to become more diversified. And now I think the majority would be, in fact, solar and wind. And also, I will also say biomass. It's an, the odd geothermal project, they aren't as common as others. But now you would see mostly it being wind and, uh, and solar. But I think part of the evolution related to the grid and also for carbon reduction is how renewable energy integrates with other forms of energy. And so you may have you know, wind energy uh, being connected to a hydro facility. So you have the ability to use wind when you have it, use hydro when there's no wind, and when there's excess wind, you may use it to create pump storage. So you increase the reservoir to generate more hydro at a later point in time, maybe with seasonal fluctuations or lower high water times. So while they've been involved with hydro, they've also been involved with solar and wind and more so, and now biomass is coming online. But I increasingly see that this is gonna be more a connected system that's more integrated recognizing the need that renewables need to deal with the intermittency of power because of the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine all the time. So storage becomes really important. So our system needs to be more interconnected. For sure. And, and are the Indigenous communities that you've been working with, 
are they involved in not only maybe the installation of these things, but also the planning and implementation and other areas of the clean transition? I mean, I would say the real important word, Michael, is just transition. And just transition is not just a transition to clean energy, but also clean energy that's done sustainably, that does not impact nature, like, you know, places that are particularly important to wildlife or species. And laterally, the just transition also recognizing that the traditional treaty holders and the rights are indigenous communities. And so in order to have a just transition, it's not simply being involved with building projects. It's actually owning them. If you're owning them, you have to be part of decision-making. And I think if it's not doing that and you don't have ownership and you don't have decision-making where indigenous communities at the table, it's not a just transition. It's an unfair transition. You may get cleaner energy, but frankly, in most cases, when they're not involved with decision-makings, a lot of bad decisions are made about projects and projects that maybe shouldn't be done or they're done in the wrong place. Having Indigenous people at the table does a number of very value-added things. They make sure projects are designed better, they're less impactful on the environment, but they also have greater community support and greater local economic benefit for Indigenous communities and local communities. And so it's not simply a matter of building and, and working on projects. In fact, it's, a, it's being owners of projects. That means you may mean decisions together. For sure. And so just generally, do you feel like this just transition is happening? Is it, is it successful? How are things going in that regard? Well, well, I mean, you only have to look at a metric when I just said earlier that 20% of the energy generating, electricity generating structure in the, in the country is owned, co-owned, or has a financial benefit with Indigenous communities. That's a pretty high metric. Indigenous communities own 10 to 20% of the clean energy infrastructure as all municipalities put together. Indigenous communities own much more than private corporations. By having participation in projects, you really ensure that projects are designed well and done well. And that's what we need to ensure is that just transition is truly a just transition. In a previous episode that I had in talking with John Chiefcalf, I learned a bit about the Indigenous perspective on nature, and he talked about it being a circular intelligence system and how we're connected to our natural environment. And I see this way of thinking is very powerful. In your experience, I mean, how can the Indigenous perspective on nature inform all of our environmental efforts? Well, I mean, I think it harkens back to the, the term of just transition, because Indigenous communities are the original stewards of the land. They understand uh, how the species work. They understand how climate works. When they are involved and they're co-owners and they're joint decision makers on the development of clean energy projects, they bring their perspective on nature and traditional knowledge into the design of those projects. They make sure that the design is not in a place that affects wildlife or species or medicines or habitat. They make sure that, in fact, that you are, in fact, maybe even restoring habitat. I go back to the story of the French River that I explained. When the colonial interests built the dams for colonial interests to have lumbering development, they also destroyed some of the habitat. So when the Dokis Okikendot Hydro Project was built on the French River, the walleye habitat was restored. And today, when I go the, to that site, I see walleye and sturgeon in multitudes. They made sure that the riparian zones of landing turtles were protected. They made sure that the archaeological zones that respected their traditional uh, ancestors uh, were also preserved. So when you have Indigenous participation in clean energy projects, they can reflect that traditional knowledge. They can reflect their knowledge of the land, of the waters, and they can make project design better, project location better. And sometimes that means you perhaps shouldn't build a renewable energy project, even if it reduces carbon, because it has a negative impact on nature. And I think that would be truly respectful of not only Indigenous communities, but what we need with, with action on climate and clean energy. Let's do it right. Let's not do it without due regard for land and nature and the traditional nature of land. Have you seen that happen where they want to implement something and then they say, actually, it would be better if we didn't because it's protecting the land? Absolutely. 
it also requires that project developers and utilities have respect for that. Uh, I think today, by and large, there is, but even then there are decisions made that are very poor. I mean, BC Hydro has developed a large Site C Hydro project in the Peace River. Well, it's a dumb project. First of all, it's going to increase hydro rates and power rates in BC at a ridiculous high number. It never should have been built. Indigenous community said it never should have been built. But the BC Hydro, I got, and the government of BC drove it through with fiat and then run roughshod over traditional interests. So what do we see now is we're seeing a, a project that in fact is having a negative impact on the ecology of the Peace River, including the ecology of land around the Peace River, the habitat of moose and elk and other wildlife. And we're seeing a project that in fact will not be the smart thing to do for BC Hydro for the future of electricity. It would have been way better to do a bunch of smaller projects and, and, and had more wind and solar in different parts of the province. So um, I definitely know of projects that have been stopped because enlightened uh, project development companies, utilities have said, you're right, we do respect that it shouldn't be built there or built at all. But I still see, you know, frankly, dumb decisions being taken by governments and utilities when they think they're doing the right thing. And the funny part of it is when they, when they actually, not the funny part, it's the sad part, when they actually go ahead, you know, it ends up being the wrong decisions for many different reasons, including economically. That's interesting. Yeah. And I guess being energy companies, their priority is to provide energy. And I guess a, a secondary thing is, is maybe protecting the land. So I, I'm, that's too bad that, that that one example happened, but I'm, I'm glad that you're seeing other examples that things were perhaps diverted. Yeah, it's not just one example. I mean, you can look at the Lower Churchill Project in, in Labrador, it's the same end. It's now three times the original price. It's going to, if it went ahead with that, and the federal government didn't give the Newfoundland Labrador billions and billions, and we're talking over now because it goes to $15 billion of free money, it basically would bankrupt Labrador. Uh, well, you know, it's, I mean, that's tragic. That's ridiculous. I think the wake-up call has been heard by some, but has not been heard by others. And I think Indigenous, that would also extend, Michael, to local ownership and local participation. Our municipalities and cities or, or communities that are blended Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities, or in fact, non-Indigenous communities. I mean, I love the community called Budnebeck that's near the county of Antigonish in Nova Scotia. There, there's a solar project being jointly developed by the Budnebeck First Nation, a Mi'kmaq community, and the county of Antigonish. That makes a lot of sense. Way better than large corporate interests. I think local ownership and local participation of clean energy is essential to resolving the climate crisis is because when you do that, you get greater acceleration of change to a clean energy future. And you get a greater acceleration of change that reduces greenhouse gas emissions. And so I think that that I mean having energy interests on the part of provincial territorial governments on the part of utilities, and even the way our legislation and policies are written on the part of how we regulate electricity, for example, is essentially flawed. I mean, these things were done in the early 20th century. We're now in the third decade of the 21st century. We need to get a wake-up call to really understand that we have to change the policy parameters. While some good things have been done, uh, we certainly have more change ahead of us. On that note, this show is about empowering our listeners to take action on climate change. How can regular people get involved in this conversation? Well, first of all, I'm appreciative of shows like you that are sharing the story, but there's a lot more to share. You can, again, go on to Power of the People TV series that one of our very strong advisory council members, Melina Labukon Massimo, developed. You can stream that on our website of indigenouscleanenergy.com. We have tons of videos that they can hear the stories and hear what how impactful and positive they are around the country. Anyone can join the ICE network. It's icenet.work. Don't go to icenetwork.com because that's a figure skating site and that's not us. Okay. So icenet.work is us. Anyone can join. There's no cost. You can hear about the stories being shared every week, what's happening around the country. And it will then create opportunities for them to both be advocates for change or for change for a, for a net zero future, 
by saying to the government of Canada, the government of their province and territory, are we changing our policies? Are you running on election platforms? Are you taking mandates forward that, in fact, respect that? And part of that respect is recognizing that Indigenous communities want to be at the table of change and have been and already are, but could do more. And that move gets into other forms of renew beyond renewable energy. It gets into energy efficiency in housing. It gets to advanced energy systems like district energy. It gets into electrical vehicle charging infrastructure. You know, so I think I think for Canadians that are passionate about action on climate and clean energy, learn the story. The stories are there, and we're pleased to share them. I think it's really important that we democratize climate action. I think it's important that we decolonize energy. We need to decolonize the power systems. I mean, the dynamics have changed. And it's not to say anyone gets sort of an insidious interest like a James Bond villain. But in fact, what we have is that we're trapped. And we're trapped in the way we thought of things in the past. And so, and, and that means that we've had large corporate interests and government central control of energy. That needs to change. This is about democratizing the energy future that we have that empowers local energy generation, distributed energy generation, the converting our transport to electrification, con converting our homes to use things like heat pumps versus oil or gas for, for heating over the cold winter. And it also entails offering opportunities for individuals to support that in both government policy, but sometimes you know, I live in Ottawa. We have a renewable energy co-op that anyone can invest in. And in fact, there are over 400 people that have given millions of dollars to that renewable energy co-op so they can invest in solar on the rooftops of schools or churches. To me, that is the kind of the hands-on ownership that really makes a change. And I think I would also say that while we definitely appreciate support of Indigenous communities being part of the clean energy revolution on the part of any Canadian, I think every Canadian should say, what can I do in my own home? Because if you can combat climate, not only are you helping yourself and the future generation of your children and, ch and their grandchildren or your grandchildren, but you're also, in fact, recognizing that climate has been having a disproportionate effect on Indigenous communities by changing their habitat that is affecting their ability to grow food and, and, and survive. So any of those your listeners that can go in that direction, we welcome them and we'd welcome any of them to participate in our community. Oh, that's great. And yeah, I think for ourselves, we live in an off-grid tiny house and just that idea of that you're walking your talk and, and if you want to help in saving the planet, that you're doing something about it. So I think that's really helpful. That's great. Thanks for, thanks for the time to join you. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show, Chris. Well, that was my conversation with Chris. Something I learned that I didn't know was how involved Indigenous communities are in our energy projects already. So for me, that was that was helpful. But obviously, we have a lot of work to do. And I like that he talked about the different small initiatives and, and small community projects that we can all get involved with. So I think that was some great information. Well, that's all for me. I'm Michael Bartz. Here's to feeling a little less in over our head when it comes to saving the planet. We'll see you again soon. In Over My Head was produced and hosted by Michael Bartz. Original theme song by Gabriel Thane. If you would like to get in touch with us, please email info at inovermyheadpodcast.com. Special thanks to Tell a Story Hive for making this show possible. I'm trying to save the planet, oh, will someone please save me?